You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Hey, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3 if you haven't already. It's good to see you all here. It's good to look out and just uh, see everyone. Uh, We're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're a guest to Citizens, my name is Darcy. I'm the pastor here. And I just want to welcome you to our church. We're glad that you're with us. What if your um, biggest gaffe that you made, or maybe like the, the worst thing that you ever said, I don't know if you can remember it, maybe you said something, you just wish you never said it, but it came out of your mouth. And what if that little bit of a phrase or a sentence was recorded and plastered on some medium for the world to see and read and study over and over and over again. How would you feel about that? Just kind of laying your life out there. Wouldn't that be great? We'd all love that, wouldn't we? In, in Matthew chapter 26, this very thing happens. And most of us who've been Christians for any length of time, we know the story where Peter has been told by Jesus you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, never. Those words will never come out of my mouth. He doesn't say that, but that's kind of a paraphrase, okay? I'm never going to do that. And then we know the story, many of us, where someone comes to Peter in a courtyard after Jesus is arrested, and they ask him if he's been with Jesus. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then they ask him a second time. Another person comes up to him, and he says, He says emphatically, I do not know the man. And then a third time, someone comes up to him and says, you must have been with that group and must have been with Jesus. And it says in Matthew 26, it says that Peter cursed and swore by God that he did not know that man. There it is, recorded in print, in our scriptures, for us to study and read, and it will be there forever, and we will look at those things. And, and Peter, if he was around still, would probably be like, move on, guys, please. Like, I know I made like a huge mistake, but can you please move on? His words came out. And it's something that all of us, probably maybe in smaller ways, but all of us to some degree can identify with. Because we've all said things that we probably wished that we hadn't have said. And it's also something that is universal for all of humanity, that we will face situations where our words will come out and we'll say things and we will have the power to uh, do good with them or to hurt with them. And so when we come to our text this morning in James chapter 3, we see that James is talking about the power of words. And the reason why this passage should be so um, important for us, or we should all be like perked up and listening, is because all of us will use our words today or this week. We're going to have conversations with people. We'll maybe have opportunity to... uh, critique something or to say some words, maybe in person with someone, 
or maybe online or through a text or through social media, some form of communication is going to happen where we're going to use our words from our vocal cords or from our thumbs, and we will communicate. So when it comes to our passage this morning, James is going to open our minds with like images and get our imaginations thinking about the power of the tongue. And he's going to do it in three ways. We're going to look at it in three stages. The first is the imperfect power of the tongue. The second is the destructive power of the tongue. And then the third is the practical power of the tongue. Okay, three points there. We're all going to be tracking with that, okay? So again, if you haven't yet, turn in your Bible to James chapter 3. If you have a phone, pull it out. Because we're going to look verse by verse at the text here and see what James has to say. So in James 3... Start with just verse 1. It says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged by greater strictness. I know that most of you, if not almost all of you, are really glad that you're not up here doing what I'm doing right now. Okay? Um, I just, I've talked to a lot of people and I just know that you would not want to be here. Some of it is just the, the fear of practical, you know, of public speaking. People just don't like that. Getting up on stage and talking in front of five people or 5,000 people, it doesn't really matter. You know, people just don't generally like that. There's other aspects as well, maybe just communicating of certain things or just stuff that comes along with being a public teacher like this where most people are like, I don't want that. Don't give it to me. Darcy, do it. You know, we'll laugh at you later, okay? You know, so someone else can do that. But James here is speaking to an audience that is not primarily afraid of public speaking. That's not why James is bringing up here. Most of the people that James is writing to in the context of this book are Jewish believers. And there was, a, there was an enticing appeal, actually, to becoming a teacher, they had grown up seeing rabbis and different scholars who would gain kind of social benefit from being a teacher. People would look up to them. They would be kind to them. There might have even been some financial benefits to having that role as a rabbi or a person of prominence in the religious realm. And so some of the people in the audience here in the early church were kind of a Appealing, you know, they were appealed to that. And they were like, maybe that's something that I could get involved in because then I'm going to enjoy some of the perks. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 deals with a, a similar but different experience. So in 1 Corinthians, he's correcting all kinds of teaching. And in chapter 14, he speaks directly to the chaos of their meetings together. And he says this in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what was said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you, you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So in the Corinthian church, there was this exuberance, there was this excitement for when they were gathered together, According to Paul, it's kind of mass chaos. Everybody's talking over the other. One is saying a prophetic word, and in this context, some are speaking in tongues. And, and Paul's like, this is chaos. I know you guys are excited about, you know, Christianity and the Holy Spirit, but it's all mass chaos. 
And so he says, do things in order. James is addressing a different issue, but it's same in that there's this exuberance. There's this excitement. And so everybody is wanting to like be the teacher. They're wanting to just jump into that role and do it. And James is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Calm down. Not everybody is called to the role of teacher, James is saying. And the reason that Paul gives is a reason of order. The reason that James is giving here is that there is an accountability. There is actually a, a greater degree of judgment that is coming that God expects of teachers. So read verse 2 here. Verse 2 says this, For we all stumble. Sorry, no, let's go back to verse 1. So verse 1 he says, Not many of you should become teachers because you will be judged with greater strictness. You see that there? Judged with greater strictness. James is saying, the model that you had of teaching from your rabbinic background is not the model that we're bringing into the church. There's a difference here. There's a greater strictness. If you have learned some truth, if you experience the truth of God from that experience and from that knowledge, you will become a teacher. It's like, I don't know if you've ever gone out to to eat with some people and maybe you get multiple dishes, like Chinese food or something, and one dish is maybe really spicy, okay? So you're the first one in digging in to eat that spicy food. Most people, I I think, unless you're just, you know, wanting to see other people kind of be tortured, you'd be like, whoa, that tastes really good, but it's very spicy. Just a warning to those at the table. I've experienced it. I've tasted it. Very spicy. Really good, but spicy. Be warned. And everybody's like, thank you for the warning. This is what James is saying here. When it comes to teachers in the church, they are to know the truth, to learn it, experience it, experience even the transformation. And God is expecting that teachers have a greater responsibility because of that experience and knowledge of knowing God. Different from the rabbinic or the religious background that is just all about teaching and you know, enjoying the prominence of being a teacher. So James says, Easy does it when it comes to becoming a teacher. But then he goes on and he gives a, even a, a broader reason behind that. So there's the strictness of judgment. That, but then in verse 2 he says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So James says, listen, we're all human. So here's another reason why many of you should not look to becoming a teacher. The first was strictness of judgment, different way of teaching and understanding the truth. But now he says also, like, we all make mistakes. So we should all know that, that me up here teaching, anybody else who comes up here teaching is not infallible, imperfect. We overemphasize something maybe. Or maybe we underemphasize something. And if like Jesus was up here preaching, the sermon would be different. It would be perfect. But we're all flawed in some ways. So James says that's one of the reasons also why, you know, not everybody should be called to teach. But at this point here also, James is is broadening the discussion. So he started verse 1 and the beginning of Verse 2, talking about teachers, but now he's, he's kind of broadening it, right? He uses the word, he uses the we. He says, we all stumble in many ways. 
We all say things that we wish we hadn't have said. We all kind of make a mess of this comment or that comment. And so James says, the tongue is a powerful thing. The spoken word is deeply powerful. And he's going to spend the rest of this little section just hammering home that idea that the words that we use, the things that we say, carry with them extremely heavy weight for the good and for the bad. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Have you thought about that? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So James here pulls out some examples for us to think about. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs them. So James says, okay, the tongue is powerful. And the, the way that I want you to kind of understand that is he pulls two examples out, one of horses and one of a ship. And I don't know if you've ridden a horse before. A horse is a, a large animal. You know, you can control people with it. I've been in, you know, at, a, at a soccer game before where there's like riot police on horses and it's very intimidating. This large animal can control a lot of people. And the amazing thing is, and James is pointing this out here, this powerful animal that can just run, it can pull things, it can do damage, is controlled by one tiny bit that's like smaller than my hand. James is saying, isn't that amazing? This powerful beast is controlled by a person or, or an instrument smaller than our hand. And then James says, here's another example, just to get you to kind of think about it, is a ship. And so you think of a ship in the ancient world, which was decently big. You know, they had some large ships that could fit a few hundred people. But we live in the modern world now. James, this would blow James's mind where, you know, maybe you've been on a huge ship, like a car carnival or a Disney, you know, massive ship carrying thousands of people. And James says, that massive ship is turned and steered by a tiny, in comparison, a tiny rudder that the captain is moving left or right. So James is trying to get our imaginations to recognize and to kind of, you know, process that the words that we use, the things that we say to people, are extremely powerful. So powerful that they can, you know, change people's lives. And so James is getting us to think and, and to remind us that our speech by the tiny muscle, which is our tongue, which sits inside of our mouth, is powerful. James is trying to get us to see that. But he goes on from there. He makes it more explicit. And this is where he shows us that the the tongue actually has a destructive power to it. There is a destructive power to the tongue. Look at verse 5. Starting at the second part of verse 5, it says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Whoa, James is just like piling on the images for us to see and to understand. He's saying, your tongue is like a fire, like a raging fire. Your tongue is like untamed animals. And your tongue is like a deadly poison. The words that you use. Like James is trying to get our attention loud and clear. You know, lights, banners, whatever. He's he's trying to pull out all the stops to get us to realize Maybe something that is the most obvious for us to understand because we've all been on the receiving end of the destructive nature of words. But here James is just like piling it on saying, this is what words are like. This is the power of this small little muscle that we all have. So he's saying this, the tongue is a destructive force. And the first image he uses is the image of fire. And I don't know, what your experience is with forest fires, we're, we're often kind of tracking forest fires in California because we have family there. And so, you know, in the, in the dry season in, in California, there's this like smoke around and we're getting texts like, oh, there's another fire that's this and that. And, and over the last few years, there's been a number of like massive fires. And I was looking them up this week. There was one fire called the Mendocino Fire, which was in 2018, which ended up burning 400,000 acres. It was a massive fire, and it ended up killing one firefighter and destroying over 280 homes. And as they researched, they wanted to see, like, what started this massive fire, which ended up being the third largest forest fire in their recorded history. They did some research and tried to find its origin. They, they discovered, this was their conclusion, that this fire was started by a single metal spark from a hammer. One single spark flying from someone working into something to start a small little flame, and away it went. 400,000 acres. Destruction. That's what James is talking about. The destructive nature of the tongue and words. But he goes longer. He says, it's not just that it's a destructive force. It's also that it, it can't be controlled easily. Like, We just blurt things out. We just say things. James is saying, you know, you can take almost any animal on the planet and you can tame it, but he says, good luck with the tongue, man. You can't control that thing. Words just come out. I don't know if you've ever seen the little 30-minute kids cartoon uh, called The Great Pumpkin. Anybody ever seen that one? You know, Charlie Brown? And um, Linus in that one, if you remember, is waiting for, he's waiting in the pumpkin patch, patch for the great pumpkin to arrive. If you've never seen that one, he's just waiting. Everybody else goes trick-or-treating, and Linus is like, no, the great pumpkin is going to come, and when he comes, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be ready, and he's going to bring all kinds of gifts and stuff, it's going to be wonderful. And all the kids are laughing at him, and they go off trick-or-treating, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and all the kids come back. They've done all their trick-or-treating. And they're, still, they're like, Linus, you're still here waiting for the great pumpkin to come. And he's still kind of holding, but like doubt is creeping into his mind a little bit. And, and they're like, we're going off to the party. They're going to a party, I think, at Lucy's house or something. And Linus says, but, but just wait. 
maybe if the great pumpkin comes, you'll get all the gifts you ever wanted. But in that moment, he says, I said if. And he's like, I was questioning my own words. And it like slipped out of his mouth. And he yells into the sky, great pumpkin, I still believe that you're here. You know, he's like, I just let that if slip out. And that's what we do. Like our words, they just slip out of our mouths. Sometimes, like, you, I don't know if this happened to you, where you've said something and you wish you could just grab that word that just came out of your mouth and just pull it back in because you're like, why did I say that? It's untamable. That's what James is saying here. But lastly, he says, and maybe most powerfully, is that it is deadly. James here compares it to poison, a deadly poison. Our words are like a deadly poison. And there are some people in history, um, people with great power, usually politicians or leaders of some sort, who have actually, with their words, um, caused things to come into place that have caused the death of some people. I hope that that's not been the case for any of us in this room. But it's possible that we have caused by our words the inner death of someone the spirit being crushed by someone. And this is maybe the more applicable understanding for us in the context here of the power of our words. James says the words that we use, the things that we say are deadly because they can crush people. They can bury them just by saying something, either with intent or sometimes even without intent. And we live in a world today where um, our words and the things that we say are being heightened and are maybe, I don't know if more, you know, driven by ideology than ever before. Probably not, but they are just like at a heightened state. And the verbal discourse between people is toxic, whether it's in person sometimes or definitely online And there's a number of factors for that, okay? Just to give us all some context and to kind of help us understand our world, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I was just thinking of a few. We live in a world now of hypersensitivity and where, you know, you could say something and that really hurts someone because they're just like, it's an area of personal choice for them. And for you, it's not. And so there's just like that difference that has come into our world But it's also, we have, you know, lived in a world now where things are changing so quickly, it's hard to keep up sometimes. So we say one thing, which meant something yesterday, but today it means something different, okay? So we've all probably kind of entered into that world where we have not come along in terms of language or what people say, and we're just not even aware of it. But there's also a sense, especially for those of us who are Christians and who follow Jesus, where we are more and more seeing the world differently from the people around us. The the secular world that we live in, especially here in Canada, is very different from the Christian worldview, and the divide is getting further and further apart. And so this is just the reality of the context that we live in. And for us as Christians, I think many of us are also struggling with entering into a place where we are a minority, where what we bring to the social discourse is a minority 
missionary mindset. And that's honestly hard for many of us to kind of reconcile and to make sense of. And so for many Christians, maybe all of us at different points, but for many Christians, we have found it difficult. And and when words and when ideas kind of come up against us, our natural response is to like lash out in a destructive way. And maybe we've seen kids do this before. Kids who do not have all the, the verbal skills, like little toddlers that are sitting and they're playing with their toys. Okay, just picture this. Two little toddlers sitting on stage here. Okay, they've got their toys. And you know how toddlers are. Like in an instant, that toy is their life. They love that toy, whatever it is. They, they do not want to give it up. Child A has the toy that they love. Child B suddenly sees that toy. And what happens? They take it. They want it, right? That's how kids act. I see that toy. I want it. They pull it. And suddenly, child A, like, lashes out. We, we could all describe it. Maybe, like, bonks child B on the head or scratches in the face or grabs the toy back and uses it as a weapon, okay? We've seen it all, okay? We've seen it all happen. But for many of us, like, let's just be honest here. The kids, they don't have verbal skills to do it. For many of us, when we feel like something that is our life is attacked or taken away, the natural response and the response that James is getting us to think about is to lash out in destructive words, to say things, to write things, even sometimes to think things. Words that are destructive and painful, that are like a fire, that are like an untamed animal, that are like deadly poison. And many of us, if not all of us, feel that when we're attacked, we, we have the right to, to do something and to say things that are destructive. And yet when we look at Jesus, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see one who was attacked, who was verbally insulted, who was put through a, a fake trial, who was mocked, who was abandoned by his followers, who was ultimately killed. And his response is total silence. Trust in the will of God. Confidence that God is going to turn this thing for good in the long run. Jesus is our example. Though our natural inclination is to burst out with all them, they just like come out. And sometimes we find maybe that it's hard to even control them. They just like come out. We're given a better way through the person of Jesus. So this is where James turns and turns to the practical power of the tongue. Look at verse 9. It's still a teaching, but it is a practical teaching for us. So verse 9 says this. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. James is saying, how is this possible? He's he's wanting us to think about this contradiction. And he's going to use some more examples later in the text about salty and fresh water and different plants that produce certain fruits. And he's saying, how is this possible, Christian brothers and sisters, that a person who is a follower of Jesus is living a life of contradiction, where on one side they do words of blessing, 
But yet, at the same time, they give words of curse to someone who is a, made in the image of God. I don't know if this has happened to you before, where you've gone on Facebook or maybe on Twitter, and you see like a thread around something that maybe interests you, and there's a conversation, and suddenly it turns nasty. You're like, whoa, this has gone like downward. Or maybe it's just gone like snide or some sort of comments. And then just out of curiosity, because we, I think many of us do this, you click on the person because you want to see, like, who's this person? What are they like? And, and often this is the case, or maybe this has happened to you before. You look at it, and it says, like, loves Jesus, right, in their bio. And you're like, hmm? With that comment? Loves Jesus. John 3.16, heart. I'm seeing it here. And you're like, whoa, okay. I'm seeing it here. This contradiction. But if, if, if I'm honest as well, I also live a life of contradiction. And maybe you can identify with it. You know, at home, with the people that you love the most, with your wife or with your kids, snide remark, saying something that you wish you hadn't have said, and out it comes and then you leave the room, I leave the room, and, and maybe even after like a few minutes, the Holy Spirit is working on your heart, and you know that what you said was wrong, or at least it was confusing for the person or for you. And so to make that turnaround and to go back into the room and make that relationship right is the hardest turnaround there is. And James is saying... As followers of Jesus, our life is not meant to be a careless life of contradiction, especially when it comes to our words. Now, is he just confusing us? Because in verse 2, he said that we all stumble, which should have been good for all of us to hear because we're all like, amen, I stumble. James is saying we all stumble, but then in verse 10, he's saying... These things ought not to be so. So how do those things come together? James is saying, don't live a life of careless contradiction, but we all stumble. And I don't know if you'll remember, but a few weeks ago we said, listen, the whole book of James is getting us to think about this very idea of a contradictory life. And we talked about this last week. Sam brought it up that you, you say one thing, but your life is not evidencing what you're doing. He's not like the Apostle Paul who's laying out the theological case for everything. James is, is assuming that the audience knows Jesus and knows that Jesus has died for our sins, knows that Jesus has died for our contradictions, and that he has made a way for us through grace, that mercy triumphs over judgment. He said that in chapter 2. And so as believers... James is saying, don't live a careless life of contradiction, but recognize that we're all flawed people. And that the reason why Jesus came, the reason why Jesus died on the cross, was for the very contradiction that we continue to live in, week in and week out. But the invitation here from James is to one of repentance and turning back to Christ and not just living in that contradiction, kind of happily going on with life, living one way and saying another thing. So what is James getting us to think about in conclusion? 
James is firstly wanting us to recognize this, is that our words, your words, matter. James is saying your words are not to be just used carelessly, not to be, you know, not to think that they are nothing. James is saying your words carry weight. They can build people up and they can tear people down. So we need to think clearly and carefully when we speak to people, knowing that that is the case when it comes to our words. Secondly, it's that our words, your words, reveal your heart. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin writes this, If you cannot go for 24 hours without drinking liquor, you are addicted to alcohol. If you cannot go 24 hours without smoking, you are addicted to nicotine. Similarly, if you cannot go for 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you have lost control of your tongue. James is giving us in in this whole book, and especially in this section, an invitation to reflect on our lives and to ask ourselves the question, firstly, maybe this, is if, if this is what my life looks like, it's a constant contradiction, then James is saying we all need to ask that question, are we really a follower of Jesus? We may have said it, We may tell people we're a Christian, but none of us knows, except ourselves, what we've actually put our trust in. And so James is saying, here's your point of reflection. Are you a Christian? Have you put your trust in Jesus so that the Holy Spirit then has come into your life to actually bring about the power to transform and to change? So are you a Christian? But secondly, for those of us who can say, yes, Question number one, I answer in the affirmative. I believe I'm a Christian. Then James is saying, okay, your life then, is it being transformed by the Spirit of God? In those moments where the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, are you responding to him? Are you putting your trust and confidence in what Jesus has done or in yourself? And James is saying, the words that we use reveal our hearts. They show us where we put our trust and our hope. Number three, your words can be forgiven. And this is something all of us need to hear because maybe it was this week that you said something that you wish you hadn't said. Maybe it was like five years ago where you said something that you wish you hadn't said and you're still hanging on to it. Or maybe you're the recipient of something that was said to you this week or five years ago. And the message of the cross is this, that forgiveness covers all things. Now, we may live with the consequences of that, lost trust, broken relationships, but the cross covers all of our sins. And it covers the sins of those who use us for destructive means. So James says, remember, mercy is great. Mercy is greater than judgment. And then lastly, your words should build up. So James does here say that with it, we bless our Lord. We we can speak words of blessing into people's lives. Colossians chapter 4 puts it this way. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Always 
There's, there's the bar that Paul says, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Your language should always be full of grace. And yet we know the reality is that it's not. Not always. And so we go back to our Savior. We go back to Jesus. And we say, Lord, shape my heart. Help me, God, to put my trust in you when I'm afraid When I feel attacked and my response is grab the toy and bonk someone on the head, Lord, I want to put my trust in you. After Jesus rose from the dead, it's amazing stories of how he interacts with his disciples. And there's one story in John's gospel where Jesus comes and he he makes breakfast for the disciples. It doesn't say how many are there, but there's a bunch that are there. And he's talking with them and he's together with them. And he comes to Peter and in a really pointed Q&A time, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says it three times to Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, it's the first time, says, yes, you know I love you. He comes a second time. Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, uh, yeah, I just answered the first. Yes, I love you. Then Jesus says a third time, possibly, possibly to reflect Peter's own denials of Jesus three times. But a third time he comes to him. And Peter, finally, you can kind of read it into the text. He says, Lord, you know everything about me. You can see right through me. You know all my mistakes, all my missteps. You know the three denials. You know all of it. Yes, Lord, I love you. And the only thing that we have in the text that Jesus responds to Peter is this. Peter, follow me. So I don't know where you're at today, what you've said, where you believe you're at in terms of controlling the power of your tongue, whether you're a a great success or a great failure, no matter what what place you're at on that spectrum, Jesus is calling us again to follow him. He has covered everything. And all we are committed to doing is putting one foot in front of the other every week and saying, okay, Jesus, increase my trust in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text and thank you for the reminder of the power of our words and Lord I pray for each and every one of us this week that we would increase our trust in you and use our words to encourage and to bring grace into people's lives that we interact with this week.